Hello and welcome to Careers by Design the Interviews. I'm Sharon Belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. In recognition of Veterans Day, today I'm speaking with Mary Roach, Wesleyan class of 1981, best-selling popular science writer and author of Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Mary, welcome to Careers by Design. Thank you so much. Mary, you've made a name for yourself by being curious about phenomena about which the average person rarely gives much thought. In fact, in Grunt, you describe yourself as, and I quote, a goober with a flashlight stumbling into corners and crannies, not looking for anything specific, but knowing when I found it. Does that describe what you were like as a kid? I have this vision of you crawling around on the floor, shining your flashlight into corners of your house, looking for cool things. But I'm probably taking things too literally. Um, there definitely were moments in my childhood where uh, I was, you know, I, 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 you know, I didn't have dreams of being a scientist, but I kind of played at that. I remember uh, my neighbor and I had this little project called the Potted Meat Project. <laughs> we... Um, this sounds really weird, but we went out, it was winter, and we hung little potted meat sandwiches. Her family would buy, like, little weird cans, like, some cross between Spam and tuna, horrible. But anyway, we put these, like, we'd hang one from a branch, and we'd put one by a log, and we'd bury another one, and then we'd go out with and, and take notes and look for animal tracks and see what had happened to the potted meat sandwiches. And I think this was, like, fifth grade. So I, I had kind of, uh, I, I had sort of an inclination toward that, but I lacked the, the discipline in high school to take the hard science classes, so I never really became a scientist, but I guess I was relatively curious, you know, I liked, I wasn't a kid that liked dolls, I had one Barbie doll, and my, uh, what I used to do with it, uh, I would pull the head off, and I'd say, I've got five seconds to get the head back on, or she dies, so it was a, <laughs> and, and which is kind of a foreshadowing of stiff in a way because there was a right. chapter in there about, anyway, never mind. <laughs> so why did you decide to attend a liberal arts college and why Wesleyan specifically? Well, I grew up in Hanover, New Hampshire, which is where Dartmouth College is, and pretty much everyone in Hanover is somehow connected to the college or the medical center, it seemed to me, and uh both of my parents worked there. My dad taught at Dartmouth, and my mom was a secretary. Uh, and everybody who went to Hanover High—not everybody—but it was—it wasn't really a, a decision that you you made. Like, am I going to go to a liberal arts? Am I going to go to college? It, it, that's just what you did. And because uh, it, because I was raised in that environment, so so closely connected to a liberal arts school. I don't, I don't think there was ever, I didn't ever, ever look at anything but liberal arts colleges when I was thinking about where to go. I never looked at UNH or any, anything like that. So um, it wasn't as though I thought, oh, I'd like to get a broad education that will just open my mind to things. It was just, it was what you did. You, you, you went on, if you got good grades, that's what you did. You applied and that's what I did. And what appealed to you about Wesleyan? You know, I hate to say this, but I didn't realize what a perfect fit Wesleyan was for me until after I got there. I one day was wandering around one of those, you know, when all the universities and colleges come with their brochures and information and seniors wander around and pick up brochures, and it was kind of a random 
process. I didn't know anyone who'd been there, and I just, it was one of the luckiest, you know, I don't think of much in my career that was luck. I know a lot of it was, you know, work and, and, and a little bit of planning. But, but anyway, Wesleyan was this very fortuitous, random thing. I, I applied, and I got an early decision, and I went, and it was the perfect place for me. So, it, it, yeah, anyway. Did you start writing while you were here outside of regular academic coursework? No, no, I didn't. I tried to get into Annie Dillard was teaching there at the time, and she had my senior year. There was, some, there was a, a seminar, a creative writing seminar. I tried to get into that. I submitted a writing sample, and I didn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I never wrote for the Argus. Um, I didn't really have a desire to be a writer. I, you know, I, I, I wrote papers, but that's not really writing. That's writing papers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, so no, I, I did not, I did not write at Wesleyan. And what were your plans for after graduation? Like, you know, bring me up to my senior year. What were you thinking about doing? What did you end up doing? <laughs> I never once went to the career center. Um, <laughs> That's okay. I didn't, I didn't know it existed, I think. I, this makes me sound like, this makes me sound so lame. I, <laughs> I had this kind of naive conviction that wherever I went, and I had planned to go out to San Francisco with some friends that summer, and I thought, I went to Wesley, and I'm an interesting, smart person, and someone will want to hire me, and I'll find something. I don't know. It's a whole big, wide world, and I didn't know what was in it, and I just thought, I'll find something. And uh, I, I didn't, I really didn't have a plan. No plan. A stunned silence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so so tell me what what developed after graduation. Uh, I came out to San Francisco in a drive-away car with a couple of friends who were going to Berkeley over the summer, taking classes, and I just went out because I had heard San Francisco was a nice place, and I did that thing where you do temp work, catering. You know, just the kind of job you can get for a while easily. So I did that, and then I figured I had to, I had to go someplace. I had to, you know, I clearly had to do something. Uh, it was 80, 1981. There was a recession. Uh, I, I was looking into radio and TV. I thought that would be kind of interesting, mm, but at that time, uh, nobody seemed to be hiring. I didn't get hired anywhere, partly because I hadn't no broadcast background whatsoever, no skills. Uh, so uh, I started um, doing copy editing and proofreading, which is something that any good liberal arts graduate can do. You get a copy of Chicago Manual of Style and words into type. You do a little reading and boning up on grammar and punctuation and et cetera, and you, can, you take the tests and set yourself up as a freelance copy editor. So I did some of that. I got hired briefly at a, a publishing house, Matthew Bender Legal Publishing, uh, which was quite dreary and uh, not really like actually editing English at all. Hmm. That was my only um, full-time 
job job. Uh, so I was there for about a year. And then uh, I got hired by a little newspaper called the Pacific Clipper. And then that folded. And then I went to, uh, I got a job at the San Francisco Zoological Society Public Affairs Office writing for that magazine, their membership magazine. And that job I got by calling up and volunteering and saying, I'd just like to volunteer there, uh, write whatever you need write, written. Because by that point, I'd come to realize that writing was kind of fun and something that I could do. You know, I don't have any other job skills. <laughs> so. so when you were getting started in writing, how did you get people to look at your work? How did you get them to read what you were writing outside of the magazine you were specifically hired to write for? I began the first freelance job. I mean, the, the, the Zoological Society public affairs job was half time, so that, that left me with the other half to try to get my freelance writing career going. And I began at the Sunday Magazine of the San Francisco Chronicle Examiner. Back then, it was a joint Sunday newspaper. Anyway, they had a Sunday magazine, and I did that thing where I queried an editor. Out of the blue, uh, I pitched a story, and I included uh, a couple of clips from, there's a section of the Sunday paper called the Sunday Punch, which was little humor pieces, and I had written some of those and got those published, so I used those as writing samples. And those I just submitted over the transom as, here's a piece I wrote that's kind of funny, and you can publish it, and they did. So I, I didn't start out having any uh, connections at any of these places. Uh, I just um, pitched I, I just pitched a story to the, to an editor who said, okay, yes. <laughs> so um, that's, that's what happened. And I continued to work with her and then other editors there. And then those editors would get jobs, get promoted at other places, and I'd work for them at different places, moved on to national magazines. So it kind of unfolded that way. When would you say you started actually supporting yourself financially with your writing? Um, well, if, are you considering the public affairs job as a writing? I mean, is that, or, or you mean full-time freelance? Well, I mean, I guess, was there a point, in other words, where you started to say with confidence, I am a writer, that is my professional identity? I would say, I guess, uh, after I, I quit the public, the, the, the zoo uh, after about a year, so that would put us around 1984. So, I, I mean, yeah, I, if I don't count the public affairs job as writing, if, uh, uh, I went to full-time freelance writing, I guess, 1984, so, you know, between two and three years out of Westland. And tell me about the process that led up to your decision to write your first book. I had been writing for magazines, freelance, supporting myself entirely that way for about 10, between 10 and 15 years. And I had mostly written fairly short pieces and not long investigative 7,000 word pieces, but fairly 
uh, you know, more or closer to three or four thousand words. And I couldn't imagine myself having an idea for a book, so I uh, I didn't uh, I I didn't write a book proposal for a very long time. And uh, I was writing. It was the transition happened again in a rather random way. I was writing a, a column, a reported column for Salon.com, the online magazine, which back then that was a big deal, an online magazine. Right. And yeah, um, an, an agent contacted me, having read the column, and said, do you ever think about books? And I thought, oh, I can't ever do a book. And uh, he encouraged me to take a look actually at which columns had high hit rates? What topics do people seem to be interested in? He was just very, he's the same agent I have now, you know, 12 years or however many years later, uh, and five books later. He uh, encouraged me to just sort of just think about it and write a two, you know, like a two-page treatment. He kind of eased me into it, you know, dip a toe and write, write two pages. Now write a short book proposal. Okay, now go for the whole thing. Really write a proposal and I'll sell it. And, uh, and that's, so that's how it happened. Your first book is called Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. How did you get the idea to write that specific book? And I'm curious also to know how you finance the research for it. Um, that that happened because of the, those hit rates. There were two columns for Salon. The column I was doing for Salon.com, there were two of them that had to do with cadaver research. One of them was about... Um, this work in the 60s that had been done um, and impact tolerance. It, it was automotive safety work. It was the aim was creating the first crash test dummy, the first um, mannequin that could provide useful information about what was happening to the human body in these different types of crashes. So there was that piece that I'd written, and then a Thanksgiving Day piece about the human stomach and how much it can hold before it bursts. <laughs> thought it was a nice theme for Thanksgiving. And those two columns had very high hit rates. So the agent that I had just been mentioning suggested, you know, you know, maybe that's an idea for a book, which to me sounded ridiculous. Who would go into a bookstore and buy a book about cadaver research? It seemed uh, kind of preposterous. But because there was uh, high hit rates on those two pieces, we gave it a whirl. And... Um, and quite a number of publishers ended up bidding, and the, advan the advance was um, such that I could finance, you know, I could, I could do the research. Um, it's not, you know, mo the, the most expensive, you know, it was airfare was the main, travel was the main expense in that book, in any of my books, and it, um, certainly the advance covered, covered that, so I was able to... Um, fund the research through, through the advance. Okay. And what were the expectations on the part of your publisher, of your agent, of yourself, on how well that book would do? Well, <clears throat> the publisher's expectation was that it would sell pretty well because they invested a certain amount of money in it. They seemed to think my my editor had recently edited uh, Thomas Lynch. He's got a book called The Undertaking, and he's an undertaker and a poet and a beautiful writer. And that book had done quite well, so she uh, was encouraged to buy another book that had to do 
with death, or in this case, dead bodies. And she was convinced that people have a built-in fascination and that people would find this surprising and different and also that there, you know, there's a built-in relevance or resonance because everybody ultimately ends up in that state. So I, I think that they they were confident or, they, or else they wouldn't have um, bid on it and been the highest bidder. Uh, my agent also, I think, you know, yeah, he, my a, 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 like any agent, uh, not going to encourage a project unless he thinks there's going to be some money coming in. Me, however, I would wake up in the middle of the night and think, those poor people at WW <laughs> Norton, they've <laughs> they've commissioned this book that no one is going to buy, like, read. Who's going to buy this book? What what have I done? How am I going to deliver anything that is going to possibly come close to earning out its advance? And it wasn't that. It wasn't like a huge advance. It was a nice advance, but it wasn't huge. But I I had very little confidence that it would sell. All I wanted was for the publisher to be happy enough to uh, buy another book from me after this one. You know, I did not expect it to be a bestseller. I didn't expect... Uh, much at all. Well, obviously it did do very well indeed, uh, but I'm curious to know how covering that topic then led to your interest in the afterlife with your second book, Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife. How did you go about choosing that topic? Well, it's about, it, it, there's a chapter in Stiff that has to do with uh, efforts by scientists and you know, centuries ago, to to uh, figure out where in the body might the soul be. To actually look. I mean, the book is about using people who've tried to use scientific method to find a soul or a spirit. Right. You know, so you know, it's it's uh, and there you know there were people like Descartes who would like take apart bodies and you know cow heads and things, looking for pieces that might be the soul. It might be like where the person the 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 personality, the spirit is housed, whether it was the heart or the brain or the liver in some cases. Or, uh, they were, so I thought that was fascinating. And so that chapter in Stiff led to Spook. So you're, you went from Stiff to Spook to your third book, Bonk, which leads me to my next question. How do you go about choosing the titles for these books? Well, Stiff was a, was a working title that I threw on the proposal, the book proposal, and I always thought I'd come back and change it because I didn't really like it that much. To me, Stiff was a term, was not a term anybody in the realm of medical research or any of the other things I covered in the book. It's not, not something that they would use. It's just more of a, <clears throat> like a cops, we've got a Stiff here, you know, cops, morgues. Right. Stiff, Stiff didn't seem quite right to me, but we never came up with a better name, and the publisher liked it, and so we left it. So it wasn't there was never a uh, a plan to only have these one word, one syllable titles. It just kind of ended up that way. Now, what led to your interest in space travel, uh, covered in your book Packing for Mars: The Curious Science of Life in the Void? Well, for I, all of my books have to do with the human body uh, and often in unusual circumstances. For example, a medical research lab or a sex lab or uh, in, in space, in zero gravity, in this environment 
for which it has not evolved and for which and in which everything is this unbelievable medical and engineering challenge so uh that seemed to, to be a good fit and i had also i had reported a story at johnson space center for discover magazine some years back that it kind of piqued my interest and i had i knew someone who worked at the bed rest facility near johnson space center where People are paid to lie in bed for three months at a time in order uh, to, because it's, it's an analog of zero gravity, so they can look at muscle wasting and bone loss and all the things that happen to a body in zero gravity. Uh, if you put someone in a bed at a slight head down tilt, it kind of mimics floating in space. So, I see. Um, anyway, that was a fascinating environment and, or place, and I thought that would be an interesting chapter. So I had two or three related chapters that seemed... Uh, it just seemed like there'd be a lot more out there to investigate as well. So so that's how I, I came to that one. Plus, I had always wanted to go on the Vomit Comet, that weightless flight. Right. Tell me about that. Oh, it was, it's amazing. It's uh, I highly recommend it. It's, if you get an opportunity <laughs> to go on one of those flights, because you're... you're uh, you're a soap bubble. You're just hanging there in the air for 22, 25 seconds, I forget. Uh, you know, and then it's it's just a plane that's doing these parabolic, sort of a roller coaster pattern in the skies. And as it goes over and down, you have twenty some seconds where you are just floating there, and all your organs are floating, and it's this amazing kind of physical euphoria. And you can, you know, you're Superman. You can fly across the plane. It's so amazing. It's it's. I would. I'd love to do it again. So then you went from the final frontier to the elementary canal for your book, Gulp, which is an in-depth look at the human digestive system. So hearing about the vomit comet, I have to ask, did one directly lead to the other? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, you know, they give you good, very good drugs on the vomit comet, so uh, uh, very few people threw up, thankfully. Um, I don't know how, no, I didn't, that one didn't lead to the next one. I'm not really sure, uh, well, no, that's not true. There was a study I came upon in which uh, researchers were trying to figure out on a Mars journey what's something easy to grow that we could feed the astronauts. What you know, something that like a renewable food. What's the easiest thing to grow? Bacteria. And they they raised a bunch of like they made this massive slurry of uh, of bacteria and tried it out as a food. This was at Berkeley in the nutrition department. And I remember seeing that when I was working on Packing for Mars and thinking, wow, just like that, that eating and, and, and taking in nutriment, you know, that, that it's, you know, that it, 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 the things people have done in studying that, uh, it, some of them are, are quite bizarre, and it kind of calls into question, you know, question that, that, that you, know, you need to be human. You don't just need to get nutrition. I mean, you get protein from bacteria. You could, but it, you know, but people have a need for eating to be this sort of sensuous, beautiful thing, <laughs> and, and and just the whole spectrum of, you know. T anyway, it just the, the whole idea of eating and our we tend to want to turn away from it as well. I mean, we've got this tube from the mouth to the butt. And it's got a whole different set of rules. Anything goes in there. There's bacteria. There's, I mean, it's, it's almost more like the outside of the body than the inside. And it just seemed like an intriguing place to spend some time. And a very Mary Roach sort of topic. <laughs> 
And after you wrote Gulp, you got to be on The Daily Show. Tell me about how that came about. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, th- that happened because uh, I was doing a talk at the uh, Book Expo America is a huge publisher's gathering, kind of a conference convention. And there's a breakfast, <clears throat> and four, there's four authors or three and an MC. And that year it was... Uh, <laughs> they build it as it was Condoleezza Rice, John Grisham, and John Stewart, and then and then it said and more, and I was more. <laughs> that was that was the more. They they tended to throw a wild card into that breakfast. Anyway, John Stewart was the MC because he had a book out, and and uh, because of m- my talk and the interaction that we had, my publicist was able to swoop in after the that morning and, and uh, kind of clinch a, um, an appearance. So it, 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 because he, he had no idea who I was. I mean, he, he actually joked to the audience, you know, because I was the last one to go on. He said, and our final guest needs no introduction. I'm sure you all know her, or maybe you don't. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, who, did you go out on the sidewalk and just pull in some random person? <laughs> so he gave me all this grief about, uh, about that. Anyway, we had this kind of back and forth, and, that's uh, what brought me to his notice, and that's how it happened. And it was fabulous. What did that do to book sales? <clears throat> oh, uh, that was, um, I don't know if it was that one or the, or the next. Uh, one of them, uh, the day that I did The Daily Show was also the day that Fresh Air ran and that book that no that was for gulp that was gulp and and that book came in at number two on the new york Times bestseller list that's wow. what it did for it yeah i mean some of it was fresh air which is also a uh, that was the first time i'd been on fresh air and that's also a really great platform for selling books so it was that combination but it's a huge i mean he 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 it, it sells books in a way that few other interviewers do because people trust him and he picks up the book and looks in the camera and goes buy this book it's hilarious right and people do or did right i miss him so (laughs) in your most recent book grunt the curious science of humans at war you set out to explore what it's like on a day-to-day basis to be a soldier and the science behind making their lives tolerable how did you discover that was a story worth telling? Um, well, it was like packing for Mars. I think is a, but that's the best parallel in, among my books because it, uh, combat is a, an extreme and unusual set of circumstances in which to throw the human body. I mean, you're dealing with tremendous loads and extreme heat and flies and fear and stress and sleep deprivation and all of these things are also things that the average person deals with to some extent so they're all of, of, of general interest so I, I thought that the book would would you know it would it would explore some some everyday science that's of interest to people like you know, sweat and heat stroke and, and things that uh, that the researchers uh, look into are also things that you know that you might deal with on a backpacking trip 
so it's, it seemed like a, a, an interesting exploration of a, a sort of a foreign culture in a way for most of my readers, but also uh, would educate them about some kind of cool science that they could relate to their own lives. So um, I, I don't remember exactly where I got the idea. I think I had been reading about Natick Labs in Massachusetts where they design sort of the accessories of combat, that anything a soldier wears or sleeps in or carries that isn't a weapon. Uh, uh, so, and it's kind of a cool, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, a, a geek for that kind of place where you can just go and poke around and there's different labs doing these things you could never have imagined. You know, uh, that, so that, I, there wasn't really a, I'm trying to, I don't remember what the exact, oh, military science, you know, I, I, I think it was a, Partly the idea came while I was reporting a piece in India on extremely hot chili peppers, which the military over there had weaponized, and I went to a military lab that was not only had worked on these non-lethal weapons made from extremely hot chili peppers, but they were also working on a leech repellent. Uh, they had they just had a number of very intriguing and sort of bizarre projects that led me to think military science might be a, uh, a little more broader and more esoteric than you might imagine. What was one of the more surprising things you found out through your research on that book? Oh, it all came as a surprise to me because I'd spent no time in that world. Uh, I wasn't, I had never heard about, um, for example, maggot therapy, which is something that was discovered in World War One, and the sort of counterintuitive fact that if a wound is infested with maggots. It's actually promoting healing because the maggots naturally debride the the wound and mm. promote healing. And right. so that you know that was um, that's an example of something I had no clue existed. Uh, I was surprised in reporting at Walter Reed on a, some work that a surgeon was doing. He mentioned um, they were doing some cadaver trials for a, uh, what was going to be the first. U.S. penis transplant. That was uh, totally surprising. I mean, it really, the whole the whole book was a surprise to me. What do you think is the hardest thing about making your living as a writer? Um, well, you know, making your living as a writer has changed a lot today. I mean, it, it's nowadays there are a lot of opportunities to be published, a lot of ways to get your writing read and to develop a following, whether it's social media or a blog. Uh, but a lot of these ways of writing are not paying. So it's, it's on the one hand easier to start building an audience and getting a following, which then can lead to a book deal or a staff job. Uh, but, but while you're doing those, you know, those, you know, that blog or social media or whatever it is, uh, it, it's it's tough to get paid directly. You can, you know, if it starts to take off, you could sell advertising. The whole model has changed. But I think if somebody's really motivated uh, and works hard at it, I think that they can do quite well in, in that way of having their own platform, selling and even selling and self-publishing and selling their books through their website to the following that they've built through social media. That whole model didn't exist when I was starting out. When I was starting out, it was it was magazines, newspapers, or books. That's, right. Or, you know, I, I, and I did some commercial writing as well. I wrote catalog copy. 
to, to you know to fill in the gaps to pay the rent. I would, uh, and I actually liked that work. I, I like advertising copywriting. It's kind of a it's a different sort of writing, a different challenge, and uh, I enjoy I enjoyed it, particularly as a you know putting it as part of the mix rather than a full time job. Uh, so just uh, um, it, it's both very different and very similar in that the bottom line is you you just uh, need to hustle. You, you know, you you just got to keep fig, you know, figuring out different ways to go about it. There's all there's always going to be a need, I think anyway. There's always going to be a need for good writing. Uh, it's just a, a matter of finding your way to a place where you can get some sort of income stream from it. I know better than to ask you what you're working on next, but I will ask you, what kind of criteria do you use when you're evaluating a possible book topic? Well, usually I'm looking at, I'm looking for a mix of something that will, I I like, I'm happiest with a mix of science, a little bit of history, something that can be written up in a way that's funny, you know, not necessarily every single page or every chapter, but that there is some room for that. That's sort of the, the sweet spot that I'm most happiest in. Um, so, it, you know, I, I know it when I see it. Uh, a lot of times people suggest to me things like sleep or drugs or alcohol, and those are their interior states. And they're, it's the kind of, you know, we, somebody tells you your dream and you zone out. It's hard to write about an interior state. I like to, I like to be, I like to have a chapter that can be set in a lab or in a, uh, you know, at NASA or on a military base or in a prison or wherever. Just an interesting setting with characters and dialogue. Uh, so it's almost a little bit more like what a documentary filmmaker would be looking for. I'm looking for scene, setting, dialogue, character. And I uh, I know, you know, genetics, that's a little bit tough, you know, you, and, and anything that's microscopic. I mean, so much of science has gone down to the level of genome and protein receptor, and that's tough for me to bring to life uh, in the way that I like to do. So there's actually a very small sliver of the world of science that I, that I can step into and do the thing that I do well. Mary Roach, Wesleyan Class of 1981, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for chatting. I enjoyed it. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.